So um, for my talk today, I want to connect with the extraordinarily clear, and I would say passionately engaged talk that Joan Harmon gave last night, drawn from Stephen Batchelor's book, After Buddhism, and many other sources, I would say, and much life experiences, I would also say. Um, now, for myself, I, I know that Stephen Batchelor has always, in his writing, emphasized the practical, non-dogmatic, um, I won't say anti-intellectual, but non-ontological aspects of the Dharma. His first book, published in 1997, is titled Buddhism Without Beliefs. 1997 seems like yesterday to me, but there are people who graduated from the University of Texas last year who were born in 1997. Um, the blurb on the back of that book says, the Buddha was not a mystic who claimed privileged esoteric knowledge of the universe, but a man who challenged us to understand the nature of anguish, to let go of its origins, and to bring into being a way of life that is available to us all. The concepts and practices of Buddhism, says Batchelor, are not something to believe in, but something to do. So you can see a thread through through all his writings that really comes out in the, in the more recent writings. Joan uh, emphasized the radical assertions that, that Batchelor makes in Beyond Buddhism. Uh, the first one is that what are usually called the Four Noble Truths should be called the Fourfold Task. Again, that's to comprehend suffering, to let go of the arising of reactivity, to behold the ceasing of activity, of reactivity, pardon me. And that's something I want to really emphasize in my talk today, that third point. And finally, uh, to cultivate an eightfold path that is grounded in the perspective of mindful awareness and that leads one to become self-reliant in the practice of the Dharma. Uh, the second uh, radical assertion, uh, and this is just wild to me, uh, and, and discussing this with Joan is what got us talking about starting this or, or volunteering to to lead this, this, this uh, event. Uh, it's the assertion that nirvana is when reactivity stops, that if we can step out of the trance of reactivity, reactivity that we um, uh, normally inhabit, that we are enlightened. That's it. That we are in nirvana at that time. Um, that is a simple assertion that posits that I can attain nirvana in this lifetime and probably do from once, you know, every once in a while, which is undoubtedly hopeful. Uh, Bachelor points out that ending reactivity gives each of us the possibility of choosing an ethical life in each moment. That's something that is strongly emphasized in the teachings of Joko Beck and Peg and Flint and, and many, many other teachers. But it calls up questions, doesn't it? Maybe even reactivity, or am I the only one? Uh, I hear in Bachelor's formulation um, an echo of the famous opening lines of the Xin Xin Ming, the Great Way, uh, as ascribed to the sixth century Chan master, Seng Chan. Uh, it, it's a, I'm going to read it here in a slightly different translation than we use at Apamata. Um, the, the, uh, the version that we use at Apamata begins, 
The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. This one begins, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Um, there's a, a Buddhist teacher named Shinzen Young, whom I will quote extensively later. Uh, and he writes, some people say that the Four Noble Truths represent a pessimistic view of things, but I derive a lot of optimism from them. On the surface, the formulation would seem to imply that life sucks, but the deeper implication is that enlightenment, unconditional well-being, is a natural state, just waiting to happen. All we have to do is negate that which is negating it. In other words, you don't have to get enlightenment. All you have to do is get rid of what's keeping you from enlightenment. Does that sound any easier? Not to me. Uh, the, and I think this is what Stephanie Seiler was pointing to when we were in our breakout room and I reported on this last night, that she said that she, she has been sitting to uh, decrease her reactivity, to, to calm the uh, reactive voices that she hears and the, and the anxiety that go, goes with that, but that it snaps, and, and, and it, it's helpful for her when she sits, but that it snaps back right into place. And she really hopes for something that can um, lift her out of that reactivity. Um, so, and it, it is difficult and it's difficult to make it last. And that's what Buddhists have been practicing so diligently for, for the last 2,500 years. Um, nevertheless, however difficult, the opportunity to step out of reactivity, to be a, a freer, more ethical person, uh, seems to me to be completely worth exploring in curiosity and wholeheartedness. Building on what Jones uh, shared last night, uh, I want to talk about some other things uh, or, or, or why something so simple and so obviously worthwhile should be, for me at least, so difficult. The first point, point I, I want to make is that the difficulty is probably not something to beat yourself up about. And I, I, I hear in what Stephanie was saying last night, a, a kind of blaming of herself the, about reactivity. But it's not something to do to, to blame yourself about it, I don't think, or at least not entirely, uh, because it comes from the complexity of our biological and mental states, our nature. It's, it's literally in our DNA. Um, and for this reason, again, later on, I'm going to point out that to me, the most important thing for um, being able to continue in ceasing reactivity is in fact the part about beholding the ceasing of reactivity. So back to our DNA, back to our uh, human inheritance that makes um, releasing reactivity so difficult. 
uh, from the earliest teachings of the Buddha, we have what are called the five remembrances. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the, of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no escape from death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. There is no escape from being separated from them. My deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. None of the five remembrances is what I would call happy talk, but at least intellectually, I can see how true they are and I can embrace that truth even when I don't want to, for example, when I'm feeling the more or less constant pain in my finger joints, you know, that's that kind of thing, or beholding the loss of my memory uh, as time goes on, those things. But I want to add some things which are even, which I, I would say are really more uh, dispiriting. Uh, other factors that contribute to and reinforce the suffering we create for ourselves and others. They tend to be more hidden and, and because of that, even more important drivers of our actions and that I think they, and they all need to be remembered too uh, because they point to why it's so difficult to let go of preferences and to step into our ethical lives, our access to enlightenment. So as I stated for myself, I would say, I am an animal living in a body that is a gift to me from all my ancestors. My mind can be described crudely and only approximately, of course, as functioning on three levels, reptilian, mammalian, and primate, all of which function in different ways at different speeds and often have cross purposes or even conflicts. That is part of my inheritance and it involves trade-offs and complications. My reptile brain is fast. It responds quickly to smells, sights, sounds, and other sensory inputs that carry messages that might never even arise to the level of consciousness. The reptile's brain responses are cloaked in judgments about whether anything real or imagined is dangerous, run and hide, attractive, eat it, chase it, mate with it, or neutral. Forget about it immediately. Just push it into the background like noise. Our conscious thoughts lack far behind, and in fact tend to be after the fact real rationalizations instead of independent appraisals of reality. I gave a talk in August, uh, on August 2nd, in which I quoted the psychologist Rick Hansen, who's also gonna show up later, and he who pointed out in Buddha's brain and other writings that our bias that our brains have because of this uh, reptilian basis, a bias toward negativity. It gave us an advantage in surviving in a world of predators and, and prey. And uh, it's still there and it's, um, it has an outside effect when we don't pay attention. So he says, uh, the, the, the way our brains work, they, have a, they scan for bad news out in the world and inside the body and mind. They focus tightly on bad news, losing sight of the big picture. They overreact to it. They fast track the experience of 
getting bad news into emotional, somatic, and social memory. And they become sensitized through repeated doses of stress hormones like cortisol so that they become even more reactive to negative experiences in the future. Which and then they bathe the brain in even more cortisol, creating a vicious cycle. Uh, I will say um, that uh, there's, a, there's a couple more points. I'm not only an animal, I was born among the most social of animals because I was biologically programmed to seek security and responsiveness from the caregivers whom I depended on for life as an infant. The relationship with caregivers in my infancy, before I had words or could walk, uh, has been extremely important and continued. It was crucial then and it, and it continues to be now. In fact, research shows that that relationship uh, shaped how secure I feel in every moment of my life. If I felt insecure in my attachments to my parents, I uh, possibly reenact that relationship later in life throughout childhood, adolescence, and into full adulthood. Maybe seeking to repair the pain that I felt um, as, a, as a little child uh, and, and doing so in mostly maladaptive ways. Uh, this situation, the adult carrying a more or less wounded child inside is um, the uh, starting point for two types of therapy that are talked about a lot at Appamata, internal family systems therapy, which I know Lisa Judge has shared some information about. Lisa, I didn't have a chance to read it yet, but I hope you'll talk about it later, uh, in, internal family systems therapy and Hakomi therapy, uh, both of which um, have a lot to say about attachment and uh, inner parts and working with those to be able to uh, step into what we call self, you know, the, the integrated, free uh, part. That is, is what uh, Stephen Batchelor points to as a state of nirvana. Um, so the, the, the situation, the adult carrying a more or less wounded child is what uh, Peg Syverson has called the master narrative of our unconscious conditioning, which hinders our appreciation of and receiving and giving of benevolence, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, the four Brahma Viharas. All the factors of negativity bias mentioned above are amplified by our social brains. There are other words uh, for this. There's mindset, so you can have a learning mindset or a closed mindset, uh, and the, the latter being associated with self-protection and the, the um, the learning mindset being more associated, in my mind at least, with openness and with um, uh, curiosity and joy in life. Um, or you could say implicit memory. There's something about implicit memory, which by contrast to explicit memory is not about more or less factual recollection of events, but more like a feeling tone that we, that we carry around. And usually it's inaccessible. Uh, and uh, I certainly would not have had access to it except through time that I've spent in meditation. 
final point of my list of bummers. Uh, I was born into a culture and that culture situates me into a complex web of historical and social relationships that I have to navigate and cannot escape. Uh, some of those uh, relationships uh, uh, offer gifts of joy and connection. Uh, others, not so much. The horror of long-term ongoing systematic or systemic, systemic racism, I'm part of it. The destruction of the Earth's resources, threats to thousands of species of animals and plants, even the capacity of the Earth to recharge its systems to sustain the life that I cling to, I'm embedded in each one of those as well. So don't beat yourself up if you are if you are feeling reactive. There's a lot of there's a lot of things pushing you in that direction. And they're very sticky and very compelling and persuasive. Um, those are the and anyway, I'll say those are the factors that I think of in the morning when I chant uh, the um, the repentances, uh, avowing my ancient twisted karma, avowing the ancient twisted karma that I share with all other humans and with all of life. And yet, all of us are able to step out of the trance of reactivity every day. Uh, probably more often than we recognize. Um, in Hakomi terms, we come into loving presence. In IFS terms, we come to self. It happens. And again, it's something that we tend to not focus on. We let it slide by while we focus on the, the negative things because of the, the bias in our brain that Rick Hansen talks about. Um, so uh, it, it's really more a question of cultivating a capacity uh, and uh, finding that there are numerous, in fact, ever-present uh, examples and that they are best approached in the gentlest way possible, not, in a not that we don't pile reactivity on top of our reactivity in trying to decrease our reactivity. That's what Dharma teachers have been exploring for more than 2,000 years, for maybe 2,500 years. Uh, and uh, I am so grateful for that inheritance. So um, I want to talk about ways that uh, we can cultivate, uh, gently cultivate this, this way of stepping out of a reactivity. And uh, the, the first thing is to recall the story of what Gautama Buddha said to Ananda and a handful of other disciples as he was approaching death. And they asked him, what are we going to do without you? We've been following you around all these years. You've been guiding us. How can we possibly make it through our lives without you here? Don't die, please. He said, I can't help it. It's going to happen. Uh, and therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves being your own refuge with no other refuge, with the Dharma as an island, with the Dharma as your refuge, with no other refuge. Stephen Batchelor uh, follows up this uh, famous statement with uh, comments. He says, after urging independence, Gautama 
poses a rhetorical question. How do you go about living as an island onto yourself with the Dharma you have integrated into your person as your sole refuge? I will say that here, Bachelor takes off from the uh, kind of self-isolating aspects of what the Buddha is advising and opens it more back into connection with the world. He says, uh, here Ananda, a mendicant abides contemplating the body as body, clearly aware, mindful, having relinqu relinquished attachment to the world, and likewise with regards to feelings, mind, and ideas. And Bachelor says, in other words, comprehend and embrace your existence, thereby undermining your habitual reactivity and opening yourself to the vision of nirvana, that non-reactive space whence you can respond freely in ways not determined by self-interest alone. Uh, for us who may not have completely relinquished attachment to the world, uh, Rick Hansen, the um, psychotherapist and Buddhist teacher, whom I mentioned before, offers a gentle, inviting paraphrase of the Buddha's instructions to Ananda. Be on your own side. Hansen does not mean this in the sense of justifying egotism or selfishness, really just the opposite. He's simply uh, suggesting that we recognize that each of us has the right and the responsibility along with the inheritance of this ability to cease being reactive that gives us the possibility to embrace our lives fully and the responsibility to do so. The Buddha was, was on his own side when he stopped following the teachings of others who demanded privation as a way of beating the um, reactivity in which he saw as in as part of his body into submission he was on his own side when he remembered after almost dying from privation that he had access to joy that he had had experienced as a small child and that the joy was still with him and that that joy could be a better basis for exploring um, the nature of reality and for exploring how to free oneself from the suffering that arises from attachment and grasping and all the other factors of what we call dukkha. He trusted himself in his own lifetime to make the commitment to awaken. And that awakening started with his realization that everything and everyone is intimately inextricably connected. So interconnected, in fact, that nothing and no one is ever actually separate, even though we strongly believe that it's true that we are separate from everything else. It's, he actually saw through that, that it's, that it's true. And th these are truths that people have been exploring for 2,500 years and found to be uh, the truth uh, over and over again in various ways, in various cultures, at various times, in various contexts. And um, um, his, another point that he discovered, everything that happens is because of everything that has ever happened up to that point. 
Um, so again, all the things that I was pointing to as kind of our inheritance, it's a broad, broad spectrum that runs from innate joy to the feeling of being trapped in reactivity. And uh, all of that is available to us all the time. And it's what Stephen Batchelor is saying that we need to embrace as a full life in our full life. Um, so there's that. And again, back to the gentlest means possible. Uh, another trailway or trailhead or doorway comes from embracing a stance of gratitude and wonder an appreciation of what is sublime in everything that is around us all the time. Uh, about wonder, Stephen Batchelor writes, uh, I do not reject the experience of the mystical. I reject only the view that the mystical is concealed behind what is merely apparent and that we have to chase it. That is, that it is anything other than what is occurring in time and space right now. The mystical does not transcend the world, but saturates it. Uh, he quotes Ludwig Wittgenstein, the early 20th century German philosopher or Austrian philosopher, saying, the mystical is not how the world is, but that it is. So here's some words about wonder from the great teacher who started uh, Soto Zen in Japan. Dog, uh, a. Hey Dogen. He says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the body and mind of others, drops away. No trace of realization remains, and this tr no trace continues endlessly. So, I have a little note that I've scribbled in the margin here that I'm trying to make sure I get right. Um, one of the earliest uh, delightful moments I had in sitting at Apamata with the support of so many people who were showing up a day after day and, and, and sharing their commitment uh, with me who had so little commitment and, and, and boosting me up, just was a, a realization one day that I, it, it wasn't me breathing that breathing was happening on its own, and that the breathing was calling me into existence every time I noticed it. And, the, and, and all the other sensations that I was having uh, were calling me into existence as I had them as well. This is you know, an early part of the Dharma, and the Buddha talks about the skandhas as being things that, that create us moment by moment and that, that make this flow of life that we exist in. But I, I want to just point to this other thing. If you, if you talk about being amazed by things, notice that that is a passive construction. We are not amazing ourselves. We are being amazed in the same way that we are being breathed into life when we pay attention to the sublime, uh, the, the utter mysterious sublime nature of the world around us within our own bodies, within our own minds, and in everything that is in the world. Um, so uh, on to some more about kind of pathways or 
trailheads. In my talk in early August, I described an exper experiential technique that uh, Rick and his son Forrest Hansen offer in, a, in their new book called Resilient. I, I mention it now uh, because I want to emphasize that the Hansons show that while we have to work at overcoming our brain's negative bias and the way our bodies and minds work to keep us comfortable and delusion, nevertheless, the effort involves recognizing the good that is all around us all the time and, and, uh, and then taking that recognition and absorbing it into our bodies and our minds in ways so it can hang around. Uh, they lay out a series of steps for, the, for uh, using our natural neuroplasticity to change the way our mind works uh, with an acronym called HEAL. And I, don't write this down or anything. We, we, it, we won't be using this later, but, but it's still, I think, worth mentioning uh, as uh, a kind of a trailhead to explore. H is for have, have a positive experience, something you can recall or that you can create in the moment. Um, if it awakens critical parts, welcome them, offer them gratitude for all their work and ask them gently to step aside now while you explore something. Enrich that experience by taking time with it. Normally, as, as the Hansons say, we have good experience and they simply slide away. They're like, you know, we're like Teflon to good experience, whereas bad experiences, we're like Velcro. We really hang on to them. But if we spend time, if we, if we uh, concentrate our minds just for, the, just for a minute, just for even a few seconds in realizing, oh yeah, I am, in the words of Stephen Batchelor, I am beholding the ceasing of reactivity right now. I am, I am realizing that I had uh, an experience of joy in communicating with another or in appreciating the world, appreciating the world, something like that. Just like enhance it by spending time with it. And then he's, they suggest techniques for absorbing it into the body. That's the A step. I didn't say E is for enrich, but A is for absorb. Uh, sensing how this beholding of the ceasing of reactivity feels in your body. And stay with that for a while. And they suggest various things related to how the parasympathetic nervous system um, works that helps us absorb goodness and connection, such as putting your hand over your heart, putting your hands on your lips, um, feeling the change in sensory perceptions that come with this with these realizations, uh, like a, a change in your vision. I know when I, I, I in back in early August, I described a, a particular experience that I had that I used this process with and how in going through these steps, I realized that my, my vision, which had been fairly narrowly focused, was opening and that I was more aware of the, the peripheral things in my vision and that that felt good. Uh, and that my, my uh, shoulders seemed more relaxed and my jaw seemed more relaxed. Uh, I'll talk more about relaxation and, and what those feelings are, are good for in just a minute. So finally comes the L step. And this is optional uh, uh, in HEAL. And that is to link the 
experience, this positive experience, which you have enriched and absorbed, link it to other feelings such as critical voices, uh, not positive memories, etc. And they, they describe a process that is much more advanced and that it takes them a while to be able to explain in the book, but it's what, what uh, they call using flowers to pull up weeds. So being able with the help of uh, focusing on positive experience to integrate nev negative feelings that we have and negative um, experiences that we've had um, in a way that is welcoming, not shaming, and um, healing. So there's that. So I, I wanted to uh, cover that just because it, it kind of gives a, a lead into the next thing. I mentioned Shinzen Young before. He's an American teacher who's, uh, he seems to be in his 60s. Um, he's an a, a extremely interesting man. He studied in, uh, did very intensive study in the um, uh, Shingon tradition in Japan, which is actually older in Japan than Zen. Uh, it came to Japan in the eighth century, whereas uh, Dogen brought uh, Soto Zen in the uh, 11th century to Japan. Uh, and it's, it's, it's connected with um, a tradition that's older than Chan in China, but that was uh, driven out of existence by a, an emperor in China. Uh, and, and only exists in this form in its Japanese form now. Um, it's very, uh, it's, it's connected with uh, Vajrayana practices from Tibet. And there is a, a, a it's also called Japanese esoteric Buddhism. Uh, and that's, that's as much as I know that he's, you know, uh, I'm sure it's worth reading a lot about, but, um, He's also a, a, a well-known teacher and he's participated in a lot of experiments connecting the practice of mindfulness, particularly concentrated mindfulness, uh, with scientific exploration and uh, is, a, is a real Western style scholar on these topics and has helped a lot of other people. Plus, he seems to be an excellent Buddhist teacher as well um, and he offers some, his, his, the hallmark of his practices is that they tend to be very simple and very welcoming. So um, I, what, I, I see Shane has left and I, I hope that I, I don't um, jump too far ahead before he can get back. But what I want you to do is sit in an extremely comfortable, but alert posture. And the, the emphasis here is gonna be on comfort. Um, so Shinzen Young says, start with focusing on the pleasant sensations associated with sitting in a relaxed way. Can you find any in your body? So you're sitting in a relaxed way, 
and you're focusing on the pleasant sensations associated with that. This is going to be the meditation that I'll lead through for the next few minutes. Um, and he says that this is going to give you positive feedback. The more you concentrate, the more you'll be noticing pleasure. So this is his invitation. And one of the things that I most enjoy about his, his um, practices that he shares with other people. He says, appreciate the fact that your muscles and the complex interactions of your heart and your lungs work to draw in the air you need several times each minute and let go of what you don't need. Let that back out so that you can be renewing your life through your breath in the next round. And your body knows exactly what to do. And there are processes going on that are kind of hard to feel and, and others that you can never feel, like the exchange between the, the uh, oxygen molecules and the blood cells that are picking up that oxygen in, in the alveoli of your lungs. You can never sense that, except in the grossest, most kind of smeared out, generalized way. But you can know about it and you can appreciate it. You can feel your legs and your haunches sinking in a relaxed way into whatever you're sitting on, into the ground. And you can enjoy that feeling of relaxation. He suggests that you might want to, at some point, consciously relax your jaw muscles and feel, if you can, that relaxation spreading through other muscles in your head down your neck and into your shoulders. He says you can feel how your shoulders rise and your, your ribs rise when you breathe in and how pleasant it is when they release. And there's, there's pleasure in the rising too, but, but particularly in the releasing. Um, There's a, another practice that I learned from Tara Brach many years ago, listening to one of her talks, which is to uh, just focus your attention on the muscles in the back of your neck. They're working hard all the time to keep this great big head from falling over, you know? Uh, and you can, on the in-breath, feel them, and then on the out-breath, offer them relaxation over and over again. And the that relaxation, it's not like you can reach the end of the relaxation of these muscles. It re the, the, it's, a, it's a renewing process that is its own joyfulness. And you can feel that relaxation spreading throughout your body. You can appreciate that you have nerves that are sharing these feelings with you. This whole sensory apparatus that's telling you all about the world and your connections with other people because you can hear voices, because you can process words, because you can see meaning in light, even when you have your eyes closed. 
All of these things are working for you, for your benefit. And you, so you can offer uh, some gratitude to them and relax into them. If your mind wanders to something else, offer it the chance to join you in relaxing. If it's, if, for example, a critical voice comes up and says, this is a waste of time. You're doing it wrong. You should be uh, filing some papers, something like that. Just offer it a chance to join you in this enjoyment, to lay down its burden and to join you in this relaxation right now. Then uh, in this meditation, Shenzhen Young offers an amazing turn. Uh, he suggests that you watch how you're experiencing these feelings, that you, you kind of step back from the individual feelings and take a kind of a meta view. And you watch how these feelings are in your body. Are they completely static, solid? unchanging? Chances are they are not. If they are, that's great. But if they're not, he suggests, watch them as you would watch a wave when you're on a beach. Welcoming them as they renew, as they flow in, as they flow out. in each part of your body that is being relaxed and that you're feeling the pleasure of relaxation. He asks in the middle of this, what is a wave of any kind? It's not really a thing. It's a doing. A wave in water is a passage of energy through the water that causes the water to rise into a peak and then fall down and to propagate that, that waveness through the rest of its waterness. And he says the same thing is happening within our bodies. We are feeling these things that are passing through us, but they're not things, but motions. He says, when you have intruding thoughts, watch to see if they, like the sensations of the body, move through you like a wave. And appreciate them for their wave-like nature also. And here again, as with breathing, realizing that they, that these Sensations and thoughts are actualizing you in each moment of your perception. And that you can, you can hold that perception in appreciation instead of leaning toward it or against it in our, in our normally reactive way. But just letting it be what it is in a kind of whole-hearted appreciation. And then he goes on to point out the difference in thinking about 
subatomic particles. They are particles that can be shown uh, scientifically that that is true. And we make use of subatomic particles as particles every day. But since the early 20th century, we have also been using the knowledge that what we think of as solid particles are in fact waves. Every single electron is a particle and a wave. And the only difference between them depends on how we look. If we set up an experiment that makes them act like a wave, they are waves. If we set up an experiment that makes them act like particles, by bouncing off things, they act like particles. He makes a comparison to ice also. If you have ice, ice cubes, you drop them, they bounce off things. If you drop ice cubes into water, they remain, at least for a time, in a separate state from the water. But if you think of uh, water, not as ice, but in its liquid state, it does some bouncing and splashing when you pour it into other water, but then it generates waves, waves of motion and bl that blend into the water that it joins. And that, that waves naturally join each other and amplify each other and, and do all sorts of complicated things that involve canceling each other and amplifying each other that, that have to do with our physical beings. So, and he says, if we are clinging to particularity, we're like those electrons being uh, particles. But if we are participating in our, our wave-like experience, we are flowing into everything. We are participating in the enlightenment experience that Gautama had under the Bodhi tree. So that's an astonishing claim that we can connect deeply and intimately in that way through appreciation of pleasant sensations as they are arising in the body. And I think that's what Stephen Batchelor is talking about when he talks about the experience of Nirvana. Do the conditions that make us cling to separateness and reactivity disappear? No, it's not gonna happen. We have this inestimably long inheritance of our physical bodies and the evolutionary the evolution of our minds that works against that. But we can see that it is possible through the, these experiences. And then we can take the knowledge of this connection and joy into our bodies and into it and, and into our hearts and minds. So um, I'm going to um, let's see. I'm looking at the calendar, but okay. I'm gonna uh, just ask you to please sit and focus on the pleasant sensations of relaxation in your body for about five minutes, and then I'm going to ring a bell, and we will uh, break for. Um, group or small groups and then group discussion.
I just used a little uh, meditation timer on my um, on my phone, and um, that that bell rings forever. I just I, I feel sad when I cut it off like I just did. I, sh I should have let it go, but um, anyway, uh, I would like it if we could break into um, groups and um, that Amanda will assign breakout rooms for each of us. And so we have currently 13 people. So groups of three and one, one group will have four, I guess. But just, um, um, I would say su suggest that you talk about um, the talk last night that Joan shared and anything that appeals to you or you find uh, useful uh, from the talk this morning. And um, let's see, we are supposed to come back for um, an activity. Oh, heavens, that really went wrong. Well, okay. No breakout rooms. <laughs> We're supposed to have an activity in 14 minutes. Uh, so let, let me let me ask Joan a question here. Joan, what do you think? Should we should we have the breakout rooms and simply take some time from the from the experiential activity? I think that that would be a good idea. I think it's really good to be able to communicate and to connect with other people. I think the the activity could probably be shortened, I, even though I don't know what it is. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I have some suggestions that I was going to make on that, drawing from your list that you gave me, as a matter of fact. But I, I, I so let's uh, let's say um, have breakout rooms um, where you talk in, in in a kind of free form way, uh, in appreciation of each other's sharing. Uh, until 1040 and then come back at 1040. Okay.